Hey, welcome world to a Sermon MP3 from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. This is February 6, 2022, and this Sunday we start a new series called Finding Your Keys to the Kingdom. And this Sunday we are having a message entitled Creation Pandemic Promise. It's all from the book of Genesis to begin with. We're going to go all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in the next few months. God bless you as you listen. What a fantastic truth, hey? The weight of sin I bear no more, hey? Amen? That was really the essence of our series from last month. And if, uh, if you missed any of it, uh, those sermons are always available on our website or in any of your favorite podcast uh, services on your phone and whatnot. Uh, we're even on Spotify. So if you give us enough likes and shares, we might actually have as many as Joe Rogan. So it would be really helpful. If you uh, gave us a few likes and shares every once in a while. Well, time to start something new. Uh, I'm going to take us on a bit of a journey over the next few months. And, and really, it's going to be quite epic. And my hope is that as a result, it will create a framework in our heads as you read your Bible from here on in. You know, probably the portion of Scripture that is the most influential on Canadian and even Western society for the last 100 years has not been passages such as the crucifixion or the resurrection. I wish it was. But guess what it has been? Can you think about the passages that have been influential? Probably the most influential is Matthew 6, verse 9. It's too bad that's up there right now, but do you know what that is? It is the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Are you familiar with it? Uh, Why don't we read it together? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's only one small editation in there, and that's the, 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 the text actually says from the evil one. We have actually changed it up a little bit. But that is probably by far, although most people wouldn't recognize it as such, but it is probably the reference of the Bible that has been the most influential. The Lord's Prayer is by far the most familiar to both believers and the unbelieving world. I mean, I I'd say probably the most influential and, 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 and popular verse, even over John 3.16. Since about the last 30 years, however, uh, that part has not been recited in our morning exercises in schools. And if you're, if you're a kid that goes to a Catholic or, or a Christian school, then maybe you probably still recite it every day. But it is a prayer, and it has been part of our pop, become a part of our popular culture. That's why you know it so well today. But I don't bring it up because I'm trying to put blame on the public school system for the decline of Christianity in Canada. Nor do I think we should recite it in our schools anymore. I wish we were at that place in our society where that would be so. The Lord's Prayer is a profoundly central theme, however, of the entire Bible. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray it. See, central to the prayer and central to our faith is the importance of the kingdom of God that we just recited through that prayer. 
Remember, all through Jesus' ministry, the importance of the kingdom of God came up repeatedly. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, for instance. It says, after, Jesus, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43 to 44, it says, But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. He was sent because of the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. The Beatitudes centralize on the kingdom of God. Nearly every single one of the parables uh, within the Gospels, Jesus starts out with, the kingdom of God is like this. And I don't think it could be stated too much that the importance of the kingdom of God has in our Bibles. It is central. So if this theme of the kingdom of God is so prevalent in our Bibles, where did it come from and what is it all about? Well, it's going to take us three months to kind of unfold all that, so let's begin. And where do we begin? Well, where do you begin with anything important? You begin at the beginning, right? So Genesis chapter 1, if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I kind of treat these first two verses like the content on the back of a book jacket. Okay? Uh, it, it, it tells the reader what the book is all about. It isn't exhaustive. It's just meant to kind of hook the reader into buying the book for one thing. And then to read the rest of the book. It tells you what about the author. It tells you why that author has the authority and the expertise to speak about the topic of the book. And these first two verses explain that. And what does it tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us this. Number one, God establishes creation by his own sovereign rule. God establishes creation by his own sovereign rule. For that reason, I personally think verses 1 to 2, because of the kind of literature that it is, kind of stands alone from, uh, from, the other se- from the seven days that follow in verses 3 to 31. The author does the same thing again later in chapter 2, verse 4. So for me, verse 1 is kind of like a propositional statement that sums up all that God created in one statement. And then verse 2 describes the kind of that primordial stirring of the cosmic waters by God, the Holy Spirit. How long verse 2 took to happen is indeterminable from the text. And how long it happened, as we see in the Bible, we don't know. But clearly it happened before God created the light in verse 3. It could have taken moments or it could have taken eons. Most evangelicals like like ourselves, and even Catholics believe that God created angels prior to the creation of the earth. And some believe that it was at this time, prior to the creation of the earth, that some of the angels, one-third of them, along with Satan, who was kind of chief among them, sinned and were cast out of heaven. 
The problem is, there isn't a single passage in the Bible that teaches that Satan fell and took a third of the angels with him in these primordial days before the creation of the earth. People take Revelation 12 where it says that the angel Michael fought the dragon, that is the devil, and a third of the stars were flung to earth. But when did that happen? Well, let's read the the passage. Revelation 12, we'll go to verse 4 and 5. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her children the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That was the premise of this so-called rebellion and a third of the angels. What's that about, though? That's about the birth of Jesus. And there's no place in the Bible that says that a war took place in the heavens before the creation of the earth. So Genesis 1 and 2 are quite a unique, standalone part of our Bibles. Still, Genesis 1-1 is predicated on the fact that before the creation of the world, there was God. I think that's why it doesn't say anything else. It just says there was God. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, and that's all about God's sovereignty, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, days 1 to 5, God fills the earth with all kinds of living things and everything needed in order to supply life to that creation. But there was one part of this creation that was special, extra special. In fact, very good. And they had a special purpose under God's sovereignty. Next, we see God choosing to create a living being that could rule over creation along with him. Now, Genesis, or, uh, creation is not called a, a kingdom anywhere here just yet. But like creation... We see here, I think, the primordial beginnings of it. So number two, point number two. God set up his kingdom with image bearers. God sets up this kingdom with image bearers. Look at verse 26 to 28. Let me go back to it. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what exactly does made in the image and likeness of God mean? I've heard a lot of possible identifiers in in sermons and books, and you probably have too. Perhaps you've heard of a list something like this. Being made in the image of God means that humanity has, well, consciousness or sentience or or they're self-aware. They have free will. They, They have the presence of a soul or a spirit or both. They have intellect and reason. They have emotions and language, the ability to have a relationship with God, whereas animals can't have that. And those things sound good, but that's, that's not the list. The problem with defining the image of God by any of these kinds of qualities from this list or others is that there are some animals, and many of those have those qualities. For instance, dolphins and orcas, as well as chimps and apes, 
have the ability to communicate with a language. They can, some can even be taught sign language and things like that. Small, primitive, yes, but they have the ability to communicate, especially with each other. They can be self-aware. They have sentience. They can also, uh, we see in, in things like rats and ravens, they have reason and problem-solving abilities. Who hasn't seen the video of that service dog laying on the grave of its master crying? That's emotion. So maybe the list can be boiled down to something like possessing a soul or a spirit. Well, the idea of possessing a soul comes from the King James Version of the Hebrew. It says in Genesis 2, verse 7, from the King James, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. The NIV says a living being for soul, and the ESV says a living creature. The Hebrew is actually nephesh here, and it is actually translated soul. But according to the Bible, animals also possess a nephesh, or a soul. In Genesis 1.20, apparently all the animals in the sea, the, the living creatures there, the Hebrew for that is nephesh. He, uh, Genesis chapter 30 tells us that all the animals living on the earth, they, have, they are living nephesh as well. The term nephesh simply means conscious life, animated life, as opposed to, say, things like plant life. I know people talk to their plants, but if they start talking back, that's when you need some help. So, Now, humans, likewise, are living nephesh, too. And that means that there really isn't anything special there as it relates to the image of God. The word spirit, ruach, is often used interchangeably with nephesh through the Hebrew Bible. But apparently, according to our Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, in the New Testament, God's word has the ability to penetrate even to the dividing of soul and spirit. So in other words, where human beings can't, God can. And so maybe there's something there about that. I'm, I'm not too sure. But the scriptures aren't really that clear. But what we do know from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that both men and women are equally included in that image. And there is something about that image that makes humankind like God in some way that the rest of God's creation, animals and plants, are not. So rather than a list of qualities like sentience or self-awareness or free will or soul and spirit and all that kind of stuff, maybe there's a better way to understand the image of God. And really, there is. And it has to do with that little preposition in our passage, the word in. It says, verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Uh, Bible scholar Michael Heiser uses a little parallel to help us understand this. He, and I'll just read it. It says, in English, we use the preposition in to denote many different ideas. That is, in doesn't always have the same meaning when we use the word. For example, if I say put the dishes in the sink, I'm using the preposition in to denote location. If I say I broke the mirror in pieces... I am using in to denote the result of some action that I took. If I say I work in education, I'm using the preposition to denote that I work in teaching or in education as a principal, teacher, whatever, in some kind of educational capacity. This last example directs us, he says, to what the Hebrew uh, preposition translated in means in Genesis 1.26. 
meaning that humankind was created as God's image. If we think of imaging as a verb or a function, that translation makes sense. We are created to image God. In other words, to be his imagers. It is what we are defined by. The image is not an ability we have, but a status. We are God's representatives on earth. To be human is to be the imager of God. So, when we think of being made in the image of God, try not to think of it in terms of an ability or a quality. Think of it in terms of status. Your status now is as an imager of God. You are to reflect the Most High. So, you are designed by God to walk with Him and rule with Him and reign with Him forever. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it determines how you see yourself and how you see the church. It, it, it determines what this whole idea of kingdom is as it's developing here in Genesis 1 and 2. It defines our purpose. It defines our reason for being made. That means that we are special to God. That means that we have sacred status. And it's our true identity. And you cannot understand yourself and you cannot understand God and you cannot understand the world you live in unless you understand your true identity as an imager of God. So if God holds human life in such high esteem, we should imitate him as we navigate life through all the different relationships and activities that, that make up our life. And that will come up later in our series as we talk about the laws of God's kingdom, like love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we last read about our first imagers, Adam and Eve, in chapter 1, they had no name yet, if you'll notice. Genesis 2, though, changes everything here. It says in verse 4 to 22, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Sounds like kind of a retelling of Genesis 1, doesn't it? Verse 5, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So this is still day, what, two. No plants yet, apparently. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. If you have any interest in the days of creation, you should really look at these, these verses here. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Where was Adam created? Verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, a river watering the the garden flowed from Eden, from there it was separated into four water headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It's, it winds through the entire land of Havila, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatics, resins, and, and onyx are the, also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs uh, along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river 
is the Euphrates. So we know this is just up in the north of the Persian Gulf. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. So was Adam created outside the Garden of Eden and then later placed in the Garden by the Lord? How much time do you suppose happened or passed between that, that, that creation and his location? And then verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from the tree, any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. Verse 18, The Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, ouch, and then closed up the place with flesh. It doesn't actually say ouch there. Maybe in the Hebrew. Somebody can correct me on that. I don't know. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And she has been a pain in his side ever since. No. (laughs) And he brought her to the man. So Eve was created in the garden by the same material that man was. And this creation conveyed unto her the same status as an imager of the Lord that Adam had. And as God's imagers, they now represent God in this sacred space. In this way, Israel viewed the garden as sort of the original foreshadowing of the tabernacle. And the sacred space of Israelite worship later in in Genesis and the days of Moses. And then later in the temple under the days of Solomon. Even the layout of the tabernacle and the temple reflect back to the garden. The garden was the abode of God on earth. He tabernacled there. He communed with humanity there. He walked with them in the cool of the day, we're told in Genesis. And from that, from, from which this, and from this place, uh, his rule extended throughout all of creation by his imagers. And in the garden, all the benefits of imaging loyalty reside. Listen to chapter 2, verse 9. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. I don't see the steaks and the lobster and all that here yet, but it'll come, I'm sure. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. For sure, Adam and Eve are God's imagers. They are his priests and and they are lords over the earth under the Lord. Yahweh, though, however, is the supreme Lord of lords. He is, and by his will, he rules. And he is sovereign. He is the Lord. Sometimes people wonder why that tree had to be there. Well, let's find out why. Point number three. His image bearers lost access to their kingdom rule. Here we see the image bearers losing access to their kingdom rule. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
enforces God's supremacy and rule upon his imagers. Kind of like how a police officer has a badge and a gun to back up that badge. They can make all kinds of decisions out in the field, but they still have a law that, they, that has to enforce their own authority, the authority that they wield. Well, in the same way, the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, enforces God's supremacy and his rule among his imagers. And if you think about it, they only had one rule at that time. But we learned very quickly that that didn't last very long. Conditions change drastically in Genesis 3 when the serpent arrives in the garden. Look at it, chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, notice how he twists it. The woman said to the serpent, you may eat, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Were they not already like God? Knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. As I said, we have no indication in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that there was any kind of rebellion in the heavens before the creation of the world or before Eden was formed. But here in Genesis 3, the serpent is present. How he got there, why he's there, we don't know. But the serpent willfully deceptively chooses to reject God's authority and he aimed to set himself up as Lord and take God's very good imagers with him. This reflects back on something that was quoted in Isaiah, uh, reflects forward on something that's quoted in Isaiah 14, verse 13 to 14. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's the serpent speaking. So now we have a major kingdom rebellion occurring in the garden, started by the serpent who had rejected God's lordship, and he somehow convinces God's imagers, his his first imagers on earth, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to eat from the one thing that enforced God's rule. They were deceived into thinking that being imagers meant that as free will agents, they should have the ultimate authority over their own lives. Then they would be like God. Then they took the the law in their own hands as a result. But imaging does not mean that you are God then or today, does it? And the very thing that enforced God's supremacy on earth became not just their downfall, but their death. 
So after a series of consequential curses upon both the serpent and on humanity to prevent Adam and Eve from living perpetually in rebellion to the Lord God, God cuts them off. He has to cut them off from access to the tree of life and therefore eternal life. And so he banishes them from the garden kingdom that he started. Genesis 3, 21 to 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So there's still an act of grace here on God's part. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and therefore live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. As traumatic as those events were and still are to our story, we call this event the fall of man. But really, it's the loss of imagers, isn't it? They are no longer able to reflect and represent God to the world. They're now marred by the very sin they committed. So what is God going to do now? Is he left empty-handed? Well, amid the curses is also what scholars call an Edemic covenant promise. Kingdom promise. Look at chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The wording here is kind of cryptic, isn't it? For sure, and we know it as prophecy. Jews and Christians have always taken this as a prophecy that one day God's rule will dominate over all the earth, over all powers of evil, with the goal of establishing his kingdom rule on earth through human imagers once again. That will not be abandoned. And one day a descendant of a royal bloodline of Eve would appear and defeat the powers of evil once and for all and break that curse upon them and upon humanity. Where do we find that? It's a very interesting piece. It's a very small verse, but it has broader application at the end of our book. Romans 16.20 tells us how God will do that. Romans 6.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. If you look at who Paul is talking about, Paul is talking about God crushing the serpent under the feet of believers. By the power of God. This point is three months down the road for us. But I have to give you a bit of a glimpse into it now. Because it's just too great. Too grand. And Eden Eden has been compromised for sure. But something is coming. A better Eden is coming. Listen to Revelation 12 verse, verse 11. Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God. And the authority of his Messiah. Hear all this kingdom language? The accuser of the brothers and sisters, who's that? That's Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how they triumphed. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
We're going to get into that three months from now. But all the rest of scripture between Genesis and Revelation is prelude and preparation for God one day restoring his imagers back to their status as rulers upon the earth with God and by his authority and power. That power from the most high God. One day that's coming again. So Genesis is God establishing creation by his own sovereign rule. And out of that creation, Genesis is God setting up a kingdom with imagers, image bearers, humans created in his image. But Genesis also has his image bearers losing access to their kingdom rule. But the Edenic promise is that God has not abandoned his imagers or his kingdom. Genesis is the beginning of everything about the kingdom of God. Everything that Jesus talks about, about the kingdom of God, has its ultimate foundation back in Genesis. And it holds the kingdom promise for you and for me as well. And as redeemed descendants of Eve, we are, not, we are destined to overcome and reclaim our status as imagers of God. That's what he did for us, what Christ did for us on the cross, at the resurrection, and by his ascension back to glory. Friends, as we reflect back on what was and what was meant to be, I think, can, can we just recognize from the very first verse of our Bibles, from Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created all that there is. And he alone is sovereign. He is sovereign over the earth. He's sovereign over all living creatures. And he is, over so- and he is even sovereign over us. And we are subject to his rule. And therefore, in our day-to-day, in our little garden, so to speak, our life networks, you have been placed there as an imager of God. Will you take up that status today and reclaim it for yourself? As we partake of communion today, we, are, we, we will be coming around a meal where Jesus activates this Edemic promise, he being the second Adam. He being a son of Eve. He being the sinless one. The one who has access eternally to the tree of life. Because he is that tree. Because he himself is the most high God. He is our creator. The creator of all that is. He came and even though it appeared as though Satan had fatally struck his heel. We see from the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord that Jesus ultimately crushed the head of the serpent and he has given us his victory. Amen? We have the finished work of Christ on the cross to redeem and to restore his kingdom here on earth. It is now in our power and our ability to do so by the power of God. So as we eat this meal today, let's come around it together as God's imagers image bearers who represent him in this world and let's claim this meal as our own because it is our victory.